Okay, that's really good to uh, see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Okay, God, uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to understand uh, your word, to uh, really take it to heart, uh, the lessons which are here for each and every one of us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, how many of you enjoy reading? That's good, thanks, okay. Uh, how many of you enjoy reading non-fiction? Okay. How many of you enjoy reading uh, autobiographies or biographies of people? Okay. I think that uh, it's very important, I suppose, uh, to read. I mean, reading is very good. I'm here to encourage reading. But I think that uh, reading about people's lives, uh, especially reading about other Christian people's lives, or just reading generally about people's lives can actually bear fruit. Because we learn about uh, uh, from other people, we learn from their mistakes. Uh, we learn from their errors, their blind spots. When we look back on their lives, and we sort of think, okay, we want to make sure that we don't make those mistakes too. Now, I remember uh, that was one way that I used to learn when I was growing up. Because over family dinners, my parents would share with us stories of relatives or friends who had done various things, and uh, they would say, oh, you know, when you're growing up, make sure that you don't make the same mistake. So I think that it is important for us to learn from other people and their mistakes. And I think that actually 1 Samuel chapter 25 is a bit like that. Okay? We are to learn from David's life, we are to learn from the life of Nabal, we are to learn from the life of Abigail. All the various facets which are brought forth in the Bible today. Now chapter 25 of uh, 1 Samuel is actually a very special part of the Bible because for the very first time, if you've noticed, as we've been going through uh, 1 Samuel, uh, for the very first time, it doesn't concern David and King Saul. You notice that? If you've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, it's the first time that we don't see an interaction between David and Saul happening here. Like, there's nothing happening between them in terms of Saul trying to kill David. So why does the writer focus on this story? I mean, why, why is it brought here and put to us in the Bible? Well, I think that it's special, uh, this part of David's life, because for the first time, I think, we see David... God's anointed king, uh, the one empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, making, I suppose you could say, his first major mistake uh, in terms of his life. His, his first major error, his first blind spot is being revealed. Now, let's look at the very first uh, few verses. First one, it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man of Moan, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was sharing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now, it's always interesting to meet interesting people, and it's very interesting in the Bible to meet interesting characters. And here we're introduced to two characters, this guy called Nabal and his wife, Abel. Now what do we learn about this guy, Nabal? Now the first thing is we, we see that uh, he is characterized by his possessions. Uh, one commentator said that his possessions precede his person. And in many ways, this person, Nabal, seems to be defined by his possessions. So I'm, I'm sure that we know some people who are defined by their possessions. Uh, they're defined by the Rolex watch that they wear, or whatever's more expensive than that, by the Benz, the city's Benz that they drive, or the Porsche or Lamborghini, or by the Armani they wear, or by the Birkin 
that they carry. And here we see this Naval, and he seems to be defined by his wealth and possessions because he is very wealthy. He has a property at Carmel. He's got 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep, and he seems to be very rich. But more than that, we're told of his name, Nabal. Now, we don't really make much of his name uh, in the English. I mean, what's Nabal? It's just another name. But in verse 25, if you look at me in your Bibles, Nabal actually means fool. Okay, now don't ask me what his parents named him that. Okay? But it says there in verse 25, Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. Now, actually, Nabal literally means fool in Hebrew. And I guess there are different sorts of fools in the Bible. But Nabal is used for the worst kind of fool. So if you look up here on this slide, right, uh, it says, For the fool, or the Nabal, speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. Again, the fool and the Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. So this Nabal is not just foolish in a general way, but he's spiritually foolish. He's morally foolish. Okay, so he's a rich man. He's a fool, but he's also surly and mean. He's a hard, nasty, mean, brutish man. Okay, so he's a very unlikable character. But we are, we are then told about his wife and for everything bad about Nabal, we seem to learn everything good about his wife, Abigail. She's intelligent and she is beautiful. She combines good sense with good looks. So here we find them, uh, next slide, in the desert of Moen, or the desert of Paran. Okay, so here, right in the center, you see Carmel and Moen, and we find these two characters around here, we see David around here too, and they all three people come together. So in verse 4, story continues. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that the Baal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now here, that is sheep shearing time, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were command, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Now, if you look at this section, you'll notice that David seems to be so courteous so humble and so respectful. And now remember who David is. He is the Lord's anointed king. He is the most powerful warrior in the whole of Israel. He has a powerful army of 600 men behind him. He just defeated the Philistine army in Keilah. But yet, look at what he calls himself in verse uh, 8. He says that his men are Nabal's servants and he calls himself Nabal's son. And he greets him like a relative in Chinese New Year, right? Send me Jen Kang sort of thing, right? Okay? Now, it's really unusual that he should approach Nabal this way. But even more so that he should come and appeal to Nabal 
for some sort of goodwill donation or appeal for you know some food or some some just something to share. And David says, look, you know, while you were around us before, okay, think of it chronologically. It's now sheep sharing time. But David said, look, you know, before it was sheep sharing time, when your sheep were eating and drinking and pasturing, we helped look after your sheep. We did not steal your sheep. I did not allow the 600 of the soldiers to steal your sheep. We didn't mistreat your sheep. In fact, if you look at verse 15, turn me to verse 15. It says that at night, right, the whole time, they were, or not just at night, but the whole day and night, when the shepherds of Nabal were out there, the sheep, um, the, 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 the soldiers of David actually protected them by making a wall around them, uh, a defensive wall around them to stop them from actually being attacked by anybody else. So, here is David. Presumably, the reason why he's come to Nabal is because there's a time of need. Okay, because if you look here, David was in the desert of Paran. It says there in verse 4, he was in the wilderness. So, obviously, his men and himself were not well fed. Food was scarce. And he comes to him at a time saying, can you please give us some food? Basically, that's all he's asking for. He's not asking for money. Okay? Uh, David is not in the protection racket. He comes to uh, Nabal at a time where, in verse 8, it says, it's a festive time. It's a festival celebration time. Now, in the Middle East, and according to the Old Testament law as well, when there's a time of celebration, a festival, people are meant to share, practice generosity, practice hospitality. So, Nabal was a very rich man. He had many things. He had, you know, as you see in verse 36, he had a banquet like a king. And David and his men came, and they were hungry, in need, and David was just asking him for bread, water, and, and uh, meat. Right? So how does Nabal respond to this great anointed king coming to him with such courtesy and humility, asking for just whatever he can provide? Well, in verse 10 it says, Nabal answered David's servant. Who is this David? Who is son of this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? How rude. Right? How mean. And how nasty. Now we see the nastiness, the nasty side of Nabal coming through. Nabal could have just said, no, no thank you. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm very busy. I can't give a donation at the moment. I don't want your tissue paper, okay? But instead, he had to twist, stick the knife in and twist it. And how did he stick the knife in and twist it? The first thing is, he doesn't give any recognition to David. He says, who is this David? Right? Who is this uh, David? Who is this son of Jesse? Now, uh, as we've read, read over the last few weeks, everybody in the whole of Israel seems to know who David is. So, just last chapter, the last few chapters, Jonathan, King Saul's son, says that you, are, you will be the king over Israel. Saul himself said, last chapter, you will surely be king. In chapter 21, even the Philistines who don't live in Israel knew that David would be a, a war's king. 
So it seems like the whole of Israel knew who David was. Even Abigail knew who David was. But yet, Nabal chose not to recognize David. I don't think it was a problem of uh, he doesn't read the newspaper, right? no internet connection out of the wilderness. I think Nabal knew who David was, but he chose not to recognize him. I guess it would be comparable as to one day, you're sitting at home, and your doorbell rings, you open the door, and who should be there? But Lee Hsien Loong. Okay. Meet the people session. And you say to Lee Hsien Loong, who is this person? Who is this son of Lee Kuan Yew? Right. Because I think that's literally what Nabal is doing to, to David. He is anointed king, but he chooses not to recognize him. But not only does he not choose to recognize David, but he twists the knife in some more. He does not give him the respect that he deserves. Look at what he says. He says, Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Literally what he's saying is, he's saying that David is a runaway slave. He's just a runaway servant. So not only does he not recognize him as the king, he's saying that basically he is a runaway slave. David has come to Nabal with courtesy, respect, humility. Nabal treats him with rudeness, insult, and abuse. And why is that? Why does Nabal have this totally unreasonable attitude? I think verse 11 gives the clue. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have stored upon my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Now, uh, the actual uh, Hebrew uh, is translated li- more literally in the ESV version or the NASV. So if you look up here, this is the NASV version. Right? And he literally says, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shares and give it to men whose origin I do not know. Now, what word keeps being repeated there? It's the word my and I and mine, right? It's all the personal pronouns. And that ties in with what we know of Nabal. A man defined by his possessions. A man who thinks that because he is rich and because he has all these things, that he is bigger and more powerful and greater. He's insulated from other people. He doesn't need to treat the God's anointed king with respect because he's a rich man. These are all mine. That's what makes him arrogant and mean and surly. But it also makes him foolish, isn't it? Because David is not just God's anointed king. He is a powerful man with 600 soldiers. And this is where the foolishness of Nabal comes through in verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. So David knew the whole picture. He knew exactly where he stood with Nabal. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. And so they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 600 stayed with the supplies. Okay, again, um, the NIV translation is very good. But I want to look at the NASB, NASB translation and the ESV will be the same. Notice how uh, the word sword being, keeps being repeated. David said to his men, each of you gird his sword. So each man girded his sword. And David also girded his sword and about 400 men went up behind. So 400 swords 
are going towards the bow now. Okay, so uh, it's very, very ominous. Okay, they're not coming for a party, they're coming for war. And what is David's intention? Well, in verse 21, it becomes very clear. He says in verse 21, It's been useless all my watching over this man's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. David and his 600, 400 swords, sorry, are going there to kill every single male in Nabal's household. Now, as we read uh, 1 uh, Samuel chapter 25, we know that the stories in Samuel are not standalone. They're connected with what's happened in the past. And last week, David showed his best side, his righteousness, his faith in God. And, and, and how did that come out? Because he would not take justice into his own hands. He would not repay evil with evil. In chapter 24, verse 12, remember we looked at the key verse, which said, May the Lord judge between you and me, right here in Saul. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. So in the previous chapter, David showed his best side. Now he shows that he's sort of got a short-term memory loss, right? Amnesia. Because what is he doing? He's repaying evil for even greater evil. Right, David is acting like no less like some sort of triad gangster or mafia boss, right? You insult me, I break your leg. You don't show me respect, I take out your family. That's exactly what he's doing. He's not being shown respect, so he wants to take out all, the whole household of Nabal. And what David was proposing to do would put him at the same level as Saul. Because in chapter 22, Saul murdered 85 priests because he felt that Ahimelech, the chief priest, had betrayed him. Remember? So David here actually sets out to do something very, very sinful, very, very evil. Nabal has shown his foolishness. David has shown his hot-tempered vengeance. But then now, the third person of the story comes in. The woman of the good looks, Abigail, but more importantly, with the good sense. Now, we're not going to read the whole of this section because it's going to take too long and we already read it. But Abigail, as you can see, shows her good sense, firstly, by reacting straight away when she hears of what's going to happen. When she hears from the servant how her husband has acted. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep, roasted grain, 300 cakes. Now, um, as you can see from the passage, this is just a token amount. Right? It's not going to feed the 400 men who are coming. It's just some, a token of goodwill to sort of uh, make them appeased. But I think that her wisdom is not shown so much in the food, but in what she says and how she says what she says to David. Okay, now let's look very closely at what she says. Because this is very important to understand what is right and wrong. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourselves with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent in harming my Lord be like Nabal, 
And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled from my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him, and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed, or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Now we began in verse 1 of chapter 25. So this short note, saying that Samuel, the great prophet, judge and priest, had died. And he was buried. But here Abigail, in her wisdom and intelligence, speaks like Samuel. She speaks with a prophetic voice. She speaks the word of God to David. She speaks from God's spokesman perspective. And what exactly does Abigail say? She really only says two things. If you break it all down, uh, she really only says two things that are really important. The first thing is, if you do this, David, it would be a great sin. A terrible, terrible sin. She keeps repeating over and over again. So in verse 26, she says that this would be bloodshed. You've kept yourself from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. Uh, Verse 28, she says uh, that um, no wrongdoing will be found in you. So she says, look, what you're going to do is wrongdoing. But I think the most uh, powerful words that she uses to show and indicts David with his uh, sin is, she says, my Lord will not have in his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Literally, the words are here that you will not have a stumbling block in your heart. Because what uh, Abigail is saying is, if you do this thing, your conscience, your heart, your relationship with God will always be uh, stumbled by this blood on your hands that you, 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 you took on your hands because you took this revenge. She says, you cannot do this. It's a great sin. It's a terrible sin. It's a stumbling block on your heart. It's a staggering burden of needless bloodshed. And it is needless because what Nabal did was not, uh, you know, did not uh, call for him to kill all those people. The second way she speaks like Samuel, she speaks in a prophetic way. Because she says, look, if David... If you trust God and do not take this action, what will happen? Well, verse 28, The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. That means not only will you be king, your children will be king, your grandchildren will be king, their their children will be king, you will have a dynasty if you trust God. And not only that, in verse 29, If you trust God, God himself will hurl away your enemies as in the pocket of a sling. If you trust God, God will take action and bring justice on your behalf. So, 
basically Abigail's message is very, very simple. Don't sin, trust God. If you trust God and you don't sin, God will look after things for you. So what does David do? Now I want us to reflect a bit about what David does because I think that what David does is something which really shows how faith, I mean what a great man he is actually. First of all, David had made a powerful oath that he would kill everybody by morning. Verse 22, right, says very clearly how much stronger an oath can he make. May God deal with David ever, be it ever so severely if by morning I leave one, alive one male to all who belongs to Nabal. So he's made this great oath in front of many witnesses. He's got 400 swords behind him. They're all hungry for blood. His men. He's approached by a woman. Now I know that, uh, you know, in today's society, and I think rightly so, we see men and women equally. We're all equally important before God. But in Israelite society, women were a lower class to men. So this woman comes to the great king, King David, the anointed king, the future king, the great warrior. He's got 400 soldiers behind him and she comes and says, you are making a big mistake. What does David do? Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with your own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been kept alive or left alive by daybreak. See what humility of David. How, how teachable David is and how, I guess, how faithful he is in terms of his relationship to God. He says, praise God that God has sent you to speak to me so that I will not sin. It doesn't matter that he made his oath, his very powerful oath. It doesn't matter that he's got 400 soldiers who probably think that he's a bit of a wimp. It doesn't matter that it's a woman who's rebuking him. But he listens. He sees it from God's perspective and says, You are right, Abigail. I should trust God and what I want to do is a great sin. Now, I think that this uh, is an important lesson for us. Yeah, I think this is a very important lesson for us. Because are we like David? Right? Are we like David? Are we really willing to listen to God's word when it comes from other people or from when we read the Bible? Are we willing to humble ourselves and say, and say, yes, uh, we have made a mistake. I have made a mistake. Uh, I need to repent of it, and I need to step back from it. Because it's a very hard thing to do, isn't it? Very hard thing to do. Uh, I mean, I think of my own self. I've made mistakes in the things that I've said, the things that I don't say, the things that I do, the things that I don't do. And it's hard to, to admit that you've made a mistake and to step back and say, okay, I need to change that. But if David, even the anointed king of Israel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is able to swallow his pride and to say, yes, I was wrong, and to repent and step back from it, able to, to, to lower his ego, then I think what a lesson for us, isn't it? That we should be able to listen to God's word. We should be able to listen to other people, other Christians, and say, yes, we need to change. 
So remember, uh, I was reading this book, You Can Change, okay? And uh, there's one part where he actually says that one of the reasons why people cannot change is because they're constantly trying to prove themselves. They want to prove themselves to themselves. And they want to prove themselves to other people. And what do they want to prove? They want to prove what good people they are. And because they try to impress other people and they try to impress themselves, they're not willing to admit that they are wrong. It is the pride of saying, I'm a good person and therefore I cannot make mistakes. But David was not above making the confession that he was wrong, that he had made a mistake and that God had spoken to him and he needed to change. So I think that's a really important lesson for us. Now the, the, the account goes on in verse 36. So finally, uh, David uh, eats all the cakes and whatever, his men eat the cakes and they go home. And Abigail went back to Nabal, and he is in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. So he's, he's not short on food and drink. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. But in the morning, when Nabal was over, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Now, how do we understand this passage? Okay. Um, I don't think we can say it's God's principle that for everybody who insults you, uh, ten days later, God will strike them dead. Okay, I, I don't think that's what I was trying to say. I think the key is uh, in who David is. See, look at what it says there in verse 39. He is God's servant. Ultimately, he's God's anointed king. That is who he is all the way through. That's what Abigail recognized. That's what Nabal should have recognized. So in the end, when Nabal treated uh, God's anointed king with such contempt and insult and rudeness, he was actually abusing God. He was actually disrespecting God because he was disrespecting David. See, look at what it says there in verse 29, what, what the prophetic word of Abigail says. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of his sling. See, Nabal was a fool. He was a moral fool, he was a spiritual fool, and again, the narrator of 1 Samuel is proven right because he was a fool, because he failed to recognize God's anointed king. He, he didn't approach God's anointed king in the right way, right? He, he, he offended him, he was rude to him, he insulted him. But Abigail, like the narrator of 1 Samuel 25 tells us, was wise. She was wise because she approached God's anointed king with with faith, I guess, with wisdom, with love, with care. And so, if you see there right at the end of verse 31, when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. She gets on the good side of God's anointed king, not the bad side, like Nabal. So fundamentally, uh, what we see here is two ways to live. You either choose 
to get on God's anointed king's good side or you choose to be on his bad side. You either insult him or you ask him to remember you and to find refuge in him. So today um, I asked Desmond for, to read uh, Psalm chapter 2 to us. Right, we did read Psalm chapter 2 and actually Psalm chapter 2 shows that the principles of 1 Samuel 25 are the same eternally. It's the same for eternity. God has appointed his anointed king and people are forever rebelling against him. If they rebel against him, God terrifies them in his anger and his wrath. Right, so, will you... When you deal with God's anointed king, you, there's no neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. And we know that Jesus is God's ultimate anointed king. Right? David was pointing to Jesus. That's what Jesus Christ means. Christ means the anointed one. So I remember this uh, great evangelistic speaker, John Chapman, uh, once said, we can never be neutral to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ can never be neutral towards us. We cannot be neutral to him and he cannot be neutral to us. We are either on his side or we are against him. And Jesus is either our saviour or our judge. In John chapter 3 verse 36, it says very clearly, if you believe in the Son, you are on his good side, you have eternal life. If you reject the Son, you will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. So as we look at this section, 1 Samuel chapter 25, it's actually a, a, an eternal lesson us and for everyone. Will we be like Nabal? Will we be foolish and be fools in the way that we treat Jesus, mean and insulting and reject him and choose not to have him as our saviour? Or will we be like Abigail? Will we be wise to ask Jesus to be our refuge, that he will be supporting us and remembering us? Because when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutrality. He is either our Lord and our Saviour or He's our Judge. And God's wrath comes upon us. And the same way Jesus is not neutral towards us. He is either our Saviour or He's our Judge. So I pray that for each and everybody today, we will learn the lesson of 1 Samuel 25. That we will always be on the good side, on the right side of God's anointed King. Let's go to God and pray. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to, to always be looking to Jesus as our Saviour, as our Lord, and recognising him as the anointed King in our lives, that he is our Christ. Help us to see that that is the wise way to live, to be on the right side of your Son, to find refuge in him. And help us to see how foolish it is to be like Nabal. To think that we can insult your king, your son. We can reject him and still be safe from your wrath. We pray that we may never be like Nabal who puts his faith on other things. And think that they may give us protection against your final judgment. But help us to see that there is no one safe. There is nothing that can give us safety against your wrath and your son. And we pray for each and every one of us here to learn from today's word that truly they will always treat Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.